Well, before I ask you to stand and we read God's word this morning, I want to circle back around a minute. Obviously, last week was a little bit of a strange week, wasn't it? It was a little odd. We had a a hundred year storm, right? There, there are some of us, including me, that never thought we'd see four to six inches of snow in Arlington, Texas, and below zero windshields and actual temperatures. It's not what I signed up for, people. It's okay. Thankful for being here. Thankful for this church. But in that, there was odd things that we had to do to recover. I'm thankful for technology. I'm thankful for cameras that I was able to at least a sermon. The other side of that story is, is I'm not assuming that you all sat there and just watched a YouTube video of me sitting and talking to you. So I want to recap a little bit of that. I'm not going to preach two sermons here this morning. Don't worry, you're not in for two hours this morning. But I do want to circle back around. I do want to talk a little bit about what was last week because it is important. In Mark chapter 9, one of the biggest things that's happening here in this chapter and in the book of Mark and all of the Gospels really is the story of the transfiguration. It's a little bit of a turning point in the ministry of Jesus making his way through Galilee and the north stories through this Gentile area. As we've seen over and over again, Jesus was in this Gentile area healing people, feeding people. And then he takes a couple of his disciples up onto a mountain. And he goes on this mountain. And on top of this mountain, he encounters with James, Peter, and John two guys, Moses and Elijah. And what in the wide world? This isn't some Star Wars scene with Obi-Wan Kenobi and Yoda, but no, rather this is actually happening, right? That Jesus and these disciples are meeting Moses and Elijah on top of the mountain. And there's a, there's a pointed time in this mountain where, where Jesus is encouraged, He's reinforced, he, He's bolstered by their presence and in, in, into proceeding with the mission that He's on to, to go into Jerusalem and, and to go to the cross and to go to the grave. Because if you recall, Jesus has been telling His disciples, the Son of Man must suffer, He must be rejected, and He must die. And if you recall Peter telling Him, no, that's, that's not what this is all about. I, I don't want that. We don't, this isn't the kind of mission that I signed up for, right? He wanted power and glory and might and control. And He rebuked Jesus. And Jesus then turned to Peter and He says, get behind me, Satan. And so Jesus takes these guys up on this mountain and He shows them. Shows them that He is God. And these guys are then in the presence of the Lord and it tells us that the cloud came just as it did in the Old Testament in the wilderness. This cloud came down upon them and spoke out of the cloud just as it did to Moses on Mount Sinai. Just as it did when Jesus was being baptized. This is My Son whom I love. Listen to Him. And what were they to listen to? They were to listen to what Jesus had just told Peter and the other disciples that He must suffer. He must die. He, he must go to the grave and He will rise again. You need to listen to this story. You need to hear this. And then Moses and Elijah vanished. And here is the pinnacle. Here's the crux of the Gospel. A turning point, if you will, of Mark's Gospel and Jesus' ministry. Jesus was staring into heaven, if you will. He had the presence of the Father with Him in the cloud. 
He saw Moses and Elijah, and he just as easily could have gone and returned to glory. He could have, just as Satan was tempting him to in the wilderness, you could have everything, just bow down and forget it all. Don't worry about this mission. Just take your glory, take your, take your place back in heaven. You could do this. Jesus could have done that. He could have vanished back into heaven with Moses and Elijah. He could have remained in the presence of the Lord. But then what does he do? Moses and Elijah go away. And Jesus turns and he pivots and he goes back down the mountain. And the prophet Isaiah tells us that he put his eyes like flint. What was he so focused on? He was so focused on the mission to go to the cross. To turn from glory and to turn to the cross. To turn from heaven and to turn to us. To turn from all that he's ever known to pain and suffering, rejection and death to fulfill what he was saying that he must do this. And so then now we enter into this week. This is the week of a time in the historic church calendar that we call Lent. Lent is an important thing. It's an important thing not so much that we need to fast, or that we need to give up something, that's between you and the Lord. If, if you feel that that's something that helps you refocus your gaze, then, then I want to encourage you to do that. But what I want to really encourage us to do in this season of Lent is to turn our gaze to the same journey that Jesus was on. To turn our thoughts, to turn our gaze back onto the cross. So just as in the Advent season we turned our, fo- our, our thoughts and our focus onto the manger and the coming of the Christ, and to this wonderful season of the Christ coming in Emmanuel now, in this season of Lent, we turn our thoughts and we turn our eyes and we turn our emotions to a different kind of journey. Jesus has come. He is with us. And now He is like are on that journey. And His mission is now shifting. Not back continuing north, but back down to Jerusalem. Back down to Galilee. Back to the cross to the grave. And so this is where we find ourselves now. So if you're able, please rise. Mark chapter 9. We're skipping over a few verses as Jesus has uh, healed a boy after the transfiguration. He's And here, just as it was uh, in a few verses ago, and starting in verse 30, Jesus then says these words to His disciples. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and He did not want any teaching His disciples, saying, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill Him. And when He is killed, after three days He will rise. But they did not understand. And they were afraid to ask Him. And then they came to Capernaum. And when He was in the house, He asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the middle of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name 
will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. The reading of God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for the truth that we find in your word. And so, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, guide my words, guide your word to mold, to shape, to nurture these people here and to all those listening. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus who suffered, who died, who rose again and sits at the right hand. Amen. You may be seated. So let us not only recap um, Mark chapter 9, but also let's just begin to quickly recap where we are in the Gospel of Mark. Mark, again, is outlining Jesus' ministry. Jesus' ministry is shaping us to and for a new kind of kingdom. What does it look like to go from a certain kind of kingdom into a new kind of kingdom, the Lord's kingdom, a new kind of economy, a, a kind of kingdom that is defined by a different set of presuppositions? A kingdom defined by an entirely different economy than what we would define a kingdom by. A different philosophy, if you will, one that opposes the very nature of who we are. In the year 1818, a now very famous book was published. It was published um, by a guy by the name of Arthur Schopenhauer. Maybe some of you know Art's work. If you are someone like me who is... Studied philosophy, you know his work in this particular book, The World as Will, is a popular and fundamental work in philosophy. In this book, Schopenhauer sets out a a philosophy which is is a deeply pessimistic view on life. Schopenhauer says there's this insatiable force that that is that's moving everything. At the the heart of this force, there's this force, there's a, a blind, ceaseless striving that he calls will. And this will is a a dynamic essence that that drives our most fundamental needs, desires, and wants. It plays itself out in all forms of existence. This, This will manifests itself or expresses itself, if you will, in the form of a sex drive, in the form of our passions, in the form of our uh, emotions, everything is driven and impacted by this will. The best thing, according to Schopenhauer, that one can do is to reduce one's suffering. So this will, we have no power over it. We have no control over it. The only thing that we can do is try to reduce it as much as possible. Schopenhauer was a big fan of art. for He thought this was how we would put this will at bay. And then some 100 years later, in the early 1900s, 1901, Friedrich Nietzsche picked up this work from Schopenhauer and latched onto it and and was enamored by it and captivated by it. And he published a book called Will to Power. And it's not the kind of willpower that we're talking about, and it's certainly not the IndyCar driver, Willpower. Did you actually know there was an IndyCar driver named Willpower? It's a great name for a race car driver, by the way, but that's not what we're talking about. So let's not confuse this thing with Schopenhauer and Nietzsche to what we're talking about here. It's not this idea in our minds, well, I just have enough willpower and I will succeed. That's not what Nietzsche and Schopenhauer are talking about. It's something more fundamental and perhaps even more subtle. 
Nietzsche published the book The Theory of the Sense of Power. And if I'm giving you a lot, just bear with me. Philosophy 101, right? This is, but it does speak into what's happening here. Nietzsche argues that we exercise power over people in two ways. We exercise power and control over people by one, being cruel. That's a way to gain power. It's a way to gain manipulation, but also by benefiting them is another way in which we selfishly want and try to gain power. When we hurt them, they feel our power. When we help them, they feel helpless and they feel our power. Do you see where he's going with this? Making someone indebted to us gives us power over them. Making someone as a subsidiary over us gives us power over them. Nietzsche, in fact, argues that causing pain is generally the lesser of the two evils. And actually says that it lacks power. But either way, the philosophies of Schopenhauer and Nietzsche point to something more fundamental, and they're missing it. They're missing something still. I think they're on to something. There is something that drives us, isn't there? There is a force that, that, that drives our emotions, our lives, our thoughts. There is something there that, that breaks us and it is causing us to be broken. It's not some insatiable force. But what is it? It's our sin. It's original sin. That, that, that very thing that does break us and causes us to want more, to, to, to have more, to, to be in control over ourselves and over others. We would say that in our sin, we are overtaken by pride. In other words, perhaps, we're overtaken by the need to be great. Not just better, right? Think about our own hearts. Think about our own lives. Think about our own emotions, our own passions, drives. What is it that we truly desire and want and think we need to be great? Not just superior, but to be great. And we do that through cruelty. We do it through kindness. Because of our need to be great. Our nature says we want more. We know this. We know this all too well. So I want to just illustrate this in a very simple way. You're saying, right, I'm not really quite sure about that. Let's just take some simple illustrations. Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player ever. Fact. I don't care what Kobe, Kobe fans or LeBron fans say. There's no argument. Guys in the back, Michael Jordan is the best. Muhammad Ali was clear to say that I am the greatest, and I think he was right. He's the greatest boxer that ever lived. Baseball. There's too many characters to try to really say who's the greatest, but Joe DiMaggio, he's pretty good. And then gasping and gulping, and there's going to be words coming out of my mouth that I never thought I would say in my entire life. But after seven Super Bowl victories and five Super Bowl MVPs, it may very well be that Tom Brady is the greatest football player ever. Yes, I said it. I'm still alive. But some of, <laughs> some of us may want to be Jane Austen, arguably one of the greatest writers ever, right? Or perhaps Aretha Franklin, one of the, 
arguably one of the greatest singers ever. Or Simone Biles, yes, the greatest gymnast ever. Whomever it is, Simone Biles or Michael Jordan or Muhammad Ali, we like these conversations, don't we? Who is the greatest? Well, why do we like that? Because we like victors. We like the big, powerful person to come in and destroy our enemies because we want to be Michael Jordan. We want to be Simone Biles. We want to be Jane Austen because these people are great and we want to be great. And if you still doubt, recall the words that we just read here. Jesus has once again told his disciples, the Son of Man must suffer, the Son of Man must die, the Son of Man must be crucified, and he must go to a grave, and he must rise again. And as they're going back down the road, just as they're coming off of the Mount of Transfiguration, and they've seen this, and they've experienced this, and Jesus is telling them again, what is their conversation? Hey, Peter, I'm the greatest. No, 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 John, I'm the greatest. I've cast out more demons in the name of Jesus than you have. I've healed more people than you have. Their argument was, who is the greatest? This is the scene in Mark chapter 9. And then Jesus pulls them aside. And it's interesting to me, if we read carefully our Bibles, every time Jesus proclaims to them that he must suffer and die, immediately Mark tells us of the disciples' reaction. Right? We talked about it in Mark 8 where Jesus told them, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, so on and so forth. And and Peter says, no, 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 that's not the way it is. Jesus says he must die. Peter says, no, you don't. Jesus here in Mark chapter 9 says, I must suffer and I must die. And the disciples are saying, no, we're the greatest. Who's the greatest? We don't want that. And then if, and when we get to Mark chapter 10, it's the same thing. Jesus will once again say, I must suffer and I must die. And the disciples say, no. So in our very heart and our very nature, we don't want that. Our economy says something different. We, in our hearts, say, I want to be great. I'm not going to suffer. I'm not going to die. I don't want to do these things. I don't want to serve. I want people to serve me because I am great. This is what the disciples wrestle with. This is what our own hearts wrestle with. For we are quick to point out the apparent denseness of the disciples, though, aren't we? But yet, when we are asked to serve, we are too busy. When we are asked to yield, we argue our position. When we're asked to love, we criticize. When we're asked to care, we ignore. This is not just the reality of the disciples' hearts. It's the reality of our hearts. We, perhaps, are guided by an insatiable bent to pride, to sin. I want to be great. However, the definition of greatness in the kingdom of God is something altogether different. Jesus says to the disciples and he says to us, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last. In an extremely wooden translation, meaning not trying to move around words for the English translation, the original language says these words, that if anyone is willing to be before most, he must be last of all. So if anyone is willing or desiring to be first before anybody, 
even before a lot of people, that person must be last of all people. So even if you have a desire to be first in front of a person, you must be last behind all people. That's really what Jesus is saying to the disciples and what he's saying to us. In the, in the economy of God, in this kingdom, this is how greatness is defined. I wonder if this is how we define greatness. Too often we define it by Super Bowl rings, knockouts, home runs, wealth, accomplishment, church size, children's performance. These are the real metrics of greatness, right? Right? How then do we move from our understanding and our definition of greatness? How do we move from our economy into an economy of the king's greatness and his economy? How do we train our hearts? How do we train our lives? How do we operate under a new kind of kingdom? The kind of kingdom that Jesus is telling us now for nine chapters in the Gospel of Mark. There's this new kingdom. This is what it looks like to live in this kingdom. And he's saying here, here is the neon flashing light. If you want to know what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God, you must be last behind everybody. This is what it means to be in the kingdom of God. But how do we do this? Paul answered that very question to another church. The Apostle Paul was writing to a church in Philippi in his letter to, yes, the Philippians in chapter 2, verses 3 to 11. Paul answers their questions of what does this look like? How do we train our hearts? How do we train our thoughts? How do we train our people? How do we, how do, we do this, Paul? Paul says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. How do we do this? This is how Jesus did it. And this is what Paul is saying. This is how Jesus is serving all. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. To even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How do we train our hearts? How do we train our minds? How do we train our lives? We sacrifice ourselves. We look to others before ourselves. We serve others before ourselves. The example that we're given in Jesus was he gave up the glory of heaven. Remember the Mount of Transfiguration? He could have easily gone back. And he turned. And he went down the mountain to the cross. He humbled himself to the point of death. Not just any kind of death, 
but an excruciating, awful, terrible, wrathful death of crucifixion, even death on a cross. Jesus saw that the disciples were struggling with this. The very same thing that the church of Philippi struggled with and the very same thing that if we're honest, I think with ourselves, we struggle with the same thing. I want to be great, but I really don't want to do that. Jesus uses an illustration to show them that it starts with humility. So the very first step in this new kind of kingdom, this new definition of kingdom in this economy, the first step that we take is a step in humility. Not a step of our own arrogance and pride, but a step towards someone else and saying, I'm going to sacrifice, I'm going to serve you. It's humility. It starts with setting aside our presuppositions of what a kingdom is supposed to be and saying the kind of kingdom that Jesus maps out is what we are about. So he pulls the disciples to the side, away from the crowd again, and he draws a young boy. doesn't tell us how old he is. doesn't matter, I suppose. But I do love, once again, how Jesus holds the precious in his hands. And he, he takes this boy, and he takes him in his arms, and he begins to teach the disciples about humility. Perhaps more importantly than the words that came out of Jesus' mouth are or is the illustration of this young boy who Jesus is embracing and holding, who is receiving this child. The illustration is not about the child, right? Many preachers you'll hear say, well, be humble, be, be childlike in your faith, and, and then Jesus will receive you. Just be simple in that humility. That's, that's not the illustration that's happening here. It's, it's actually, the illustration is Jesus himself receiving the child, receiving the innocent, receiving the outcast. Jesus is saying, how you treat the child is how you treat me. And how you treat the child and how you treat me is how you treat God the Father. If you treat a child like this, you treat me like this and you treat God like this. This is humility. So then let me take you to another bit of Paul's writing in Romans chapter 5 to, to play this out a, le- a little bit more. What, what is humility and what is the extent to which this kingdom of God looks like? If a child is, is weak and frail, Paul says these words, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been now justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we shall we be saved by his life. We in our sin are no more powerful than this boy who Jesus now embraces. In our sin, we are the marginalized. We are the outcast. We are the weak. We are the frail. And even more than that, We were enemies of the Lord. While we were weak, while we were frail, 
while we were combating against God Himself, Jesus humbled Himself to death, even death on a cross. But what does that look like, Ryan? I think I understand. I think I get it. But what does that look like on Monday morning? What does that look like tomorrow? Or, or maybe the question that really is at the heart of what Jesus is trying to get at in here in Mark chapter 9 is, is, a, is a bit of a twofold question. Who am I supposed to serve? And how? Or who am I supposed to serve with? In our culture, babies are considered adorable, aren't they? We, we like to grab their cheeks and we like to watch them giggle. We like to watch them take baby steps. And it is the cutest thing you can imagine. There's some back there. You can watch them play. And it's wonderful. And moreover, it's a beautiful thing to watch little children. They are adorable. They are wonderful and they are precious. But in the first century, that's not the posture of children. In the first century, children were a, a bit of just a, a, a necessary, right? They were necessary to advance the family line. And, and, and frankly, women and children were, were of little value. And children were of little value until they reached a certain age as young boys. And so then here Jesus pulls this child who was of little value. And they weren't really thinking, oh, how cute. But Jesus, what are you doing? And he says, if you receive the outcast, you see, you receive the one with little value. You receive the marginalized, the poor, the needy, the hungry, the thirsty, the cold, the tired then you receive me. One pastor tells a story this way. If I want to tell somebody who's not a Christian about God, someone's asking him this question, if I want to tell somebody who's not a Christian about God, can you give me one word that I can use to express the nature of God? And this pastor's response was, why don't you speak of God being adorable? She looked at me funny like she was thinking, I don't think I can use that one. And he says, here's why I suggested it. When we use the word adorable, we're often talking about some cute young lady or little children. But that which is adorable is God. For we are to adore Him. We are to adore His grace, His mercy, His love. We are to adore everything that is and who God is. When we see a little baby, we say, oh, how adorable. But as I've said in the ancient world, that's not what they saw in this child. And so you want to be great? You want to be great? Whoever receives this child in my name, that's greatness. Whoever receives the outcast, whoever receives the poor, the needy, the hungry, the tired, the lost... The disenfranchised. That's how you become great. Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. He didn't appoint one of the twelve as great. No, he says, here is my emissary. Here is my ambassador, this child. To be great means to receive them. Because then you receive the Father. Jesus used this principle again, doesn't he? As he continues on through this story. 
So we're not only to receive those who are on the margins. We're not only to receive, yes, the children. We're not only to adore God and his grace and his mercy. We're not only to receive the outcast. But we're also supposed to work arm in arm with others in Christ's name. Because the disciples didn't say, yeah, but Jesus, we, we saw this guy and he was casting out demons in your name and he wasn't with us so we tried to get rid of him and he's not very good, right? Well, they do baptism like that so that they can't be... No, that... Right? Well, they don't believe this so they're not very good, right? They, they don't believe exactly the way we believe so they can't be very good, right? They're, they're somehow not really Christians. They're not really with us so they can't be with you, right? So who do we serve with? We know this conversation, especially here in our culture in southern United States. There are friends all around us who have a starkly different view on certain things that we don't. And there are many of us and many of them that would say, you know what, we can't be arm in arm with you because you don't agree with us in that. We can't lock arm in arm because we differ on that point. And, th- and that's a major thing. And it is a major thing. Don't, don't hear me say that something like baptism isn't major. That's not what I'm saying, right? Don't hear what I'm not saying. But here Jesus says to them, if anyone gives a cup of cold water to someone in my name, then that's okay. They're with us. He's with us. Now the sticking point is there needs to be some discernment in that, right? There are differences, and there needs to be differences, I think, because those differences are important. But we need to discern what are the majors and what are the minors. What are the major things that we can lock arm in arm with our friends across the street or down the street or that way or that way, whomever, right? What are the things that we can lock arm in arm? And there are many, many, many things that together we can say, yes, Jesus is our Lord and our Savior and by grace alone we're saved. We can lock arm in arms and they are for us and they are with us and we are with them and we are for them. Hence, we pray for Jason. We pray for Eric. We pray for Marty. And we also pray for Josh and for Brian, for Darwin. Because there is unity under the banner of Christ. So we serve arm in arm with those who fly the banner of Jesus. And there is some discernment, yes. And I don't have enough time to go into what all those discerning factors are. But we, do, we need to be careful, but we don't need to get stiff arms at the same time. We lock arm in arm with those to serve the needy in our community. We lock arm in arm with places like Mission Arlington to serve the poor in our city. They do tremendous work. And we say yes. And we celebrate. And we celebrate along with them when people come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. We celebrate with our friends across the street as some Sundays you'll see semi-truck after semi-truck feeding the poor in this city. They have resources that we don't and praise the Lord that they do. And we can lock arm in arm with them and say praise the Lord for you are receiving the marginalized, the poor. And you are serving the kingdom. This is what Jesus wanted them to see. It was imperative for Jesus for them to understand these truths of who do we serve and who do we serve with. 
We serve the marginalized under the banner of Jesus Christ. It's imperative that we, too, understand the very same points. That Jesus died for a weak, rebellious man like me while I was in the middle of my rebellion. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross for me. And so what then is my response? To say thank you, praise the Lord, but also then in turn to take a step in humility towards the little child. To take a step towards the poor, towards the marginalized, towards the disenfranchised, towards those who don't have justice and righteousness as their reality. This is who we are as Christians. This is what it means to be in the kingdom of God together. That Jesus died for me while I was a sinner. I must tell you, this moves my heart. Every time I hear those words, and I pray that it will move my feet and my hands to take root in this kingdom a little bit more. To take root in a kingdom defined by the suffering servant who was led like a lamb before the shearer and was silent. By the suffering servant who was crucified to death, to death on a cross. And he said not a word. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is greatness. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you that you are great we recognize that we are not. And so, Lord, we pray that you would humble our hearts and that we would serve others the way you serve and love us. And so, Lord, now as we come to your table, may your grace flow over us. May this truth of this reality of your sacrifice on our behalf, may that become real even in this moment. And so we pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.